This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In this week's episode of Technically Human, I am thrilled to bring you a conversation with Dr. Eric Daimler. Dr. Daimler is a leading authority in robotics and artificial intelligence with over 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur, investor, technologist, and policymaker. He served under the Obama administration as a Presidential Innovation Fellow for AI and Robotics in the Executive Office of the President. As a sole authority driving the agenda for U.S. leadership in research, commercialization, and public adoption of AI and robotics, Dr. Daimler has incubated, built, and led several technology companies recognized as pioneers in their fields, ranging from software systems to statistical arbitrage. His newest venture, Connexus, is a groundbreaking solution for what is perhaps today's biggest information technology problem, data deluge. As founder and CEO of Connexus, Dr. Daimler is leading the development of CQL, a patent-pending platform founded upon category theory a revolution in mathematics to help companies manage the overwhelming and rapidly growing challenge of data integration and migration. His academic research has been at the intersection of AI, computational linguistics, and network science or graph theory. His work has expanded to include economics and public policy. He served as assistant professor and assistant dean at Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science, where he founded the university's entrepreneurial management program and helped to launch Carnegie Mellon's Silicon Valley campus. He has studied at the University of Washington in Seattle, Stanford University, and Carnegie Mellon University, where he earned his PhD in computer science. Dr. Daimler's extensive career spans business, academics, and policy, and gives him a rare perspective on the next generation of AI. Dr. Daimler sees clearly how information technology can dramatically improve our world. However, it demands our engagement. Neither a utopia nor dystopia is inevitable. What matters is how we shape and react to its development. Hi, Eric. Good afternoon. So, Eric, I'd love to start off by asking you a bit about your professional trajectory, which is fascinating to me. Your career has spanned across academia. You have a PhD in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University, where you were professor of computer science, as well as the assistant dean at Carnegie Mellon's School of Computer Science. You're also context-driven in the policy world, serving under the Obama administration as the Presidential Innovation Fellow for AI and Robotics in the Executive Office of the President, as well as a sole authority driving the agenda for the U.S. leadership in research, commercialization, and public adoption of AI and robotics. That was a mouthful. And I should also add that on top of both of those remarkable professional arenas, you are also a serial entrepreneur. You're currently the founder and CEO of Connexus. I'm a fellow academic, also with a background in policy and entrepreneurship. So I'm really curious about how others like you, tell the story of what got them from one point to another in their careers in that kind of expansive way. What led you from academia to policy to entrepreneurship? Were there particular pivot points or were there particular encounters or ideas that mobilized you from one industry or sector to the next? I have been grateful to be with some great people. I certainly started that off with with the privilege of having picked my parents well and uh, having some wonderful siblings. 
But I just had a, a series of fortunate uh, events where I had great people uh, around me, starting back in, gosh, high school, middle school, you know, as, lo as long as I can remember. That it certainly is consistent with advice that one might get out in the world, uh, that what you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with or some such thing. And if I look back, that probably is the best commonality for my career trajectory, whatever I've done in life, is I've just tended to make uh, good choices about the people that I'm around because they'll affect a lot of decisions uh, unconsciously. Because of uh, my upbringing, because of people that I was around, I uh, tended to be around computers at a very young age. Uh, I think I built my first computer when I was 10, which, which sounds like terribly precocious, and dropped out of high school to go to the, the University of Washington, Seattle a couple of years early, which again, sounds you know terribly, terribly uh, precocious. But I have been really fascinated by computers for my particular mission, which was uh, to allow people to become more human. Uh, I always saw these digital tools as allowing a bit better expression of what is great about each one of us. Uh, I, I thought it was a sort of liberation uh, instead of what I see people still doing, which is being in these, in these jobs that uh, they don't care for. You know, we have tens of thousands, even millions of computer programmers that do some sort of vocational level IT work. And it's really my aspiration that we continue to evolve these digital tools so that all of those people are really doing higher level work. I'm optimistic about the future, both for those trained in technology and those trained in, in liberal arts, because I think there's really a great place for everybody to make a, a contribution. You know, there's something like 18 million computer programmers in the world, and, and we don't really need 18 million in one computer programmers as much as it's going to be useful to, to learn some of the uh, techniques and sensibilities uh, of our digital age. I'm really excited about bringing people that don't have uh, a, a, a drive to apply themselves in day-to-day -day digital work, instead finding a place to apply some degree of subject matter expertise inside of a, a, a larger uh, system and being able to contribute uh, whatever uh, special thoughts and, and special synthesis of the world they have into some uh, greater good. I mean, you will not get an argument from me as a humanist that we want to complexify the kinds of thinking, the kinds of backgrounds that people have when they come to a problem, even a digital problem, right? And I get really excited when people talk about this idea that we should create more robust teams of people with a number of different areas of expertise beyond the digital. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier, and we we're looking at the major problems facing us right now, something like COVID, for example. COVID is a problem of immunity. Immunology. It's a problem of public health. It's a problem of policy. It's a problem of psychology and culture. And we have to have people who can complexly understand these things and bring this knowledge together in order to solve a major problem of our time, right? It's a, it's a problem that far extends beyond the kind of central issue of how do we identify and treat a virus. And so I, I guess I get really excited when you talk about the dimension that you're working on or that you say is important to you, which 
which is building these kinds of robust teams. And I'm curious, because you have worked in so many different arenas yourself, again, industry, policy, academia, what you see in terms of how these sectors can work well together or how they do work well together, how perhaps they fail to work well together. What's your take? How do we build better kind of robust teams across different sectors as well as across different areas of expertise and disciplinary training? You know, I don't mean to be provocative uh, when I when I say it that that you may be actually surprised by my answer. I am not even expecting me of five years ago to be giving the answer that I'd give uh, today because I, I have spent you know twenty plus years in and around artificial intelligence from from originally an academic researcher and as an entrepreneur many times as a VC on Sand Hill Road for. Uh, a wild venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road, and, and of course, I spent time in uh, in in Washington D.C. Uh, working in the Obama White House in AI and AI policy. And the answer really came together when I had that perspective, that last perspective. The it's it's really remarkable working in the federal government where there's some talented, well-meaning people, uh, you know, working for the for the good of the nation. It's a different perspective, even even bigger than the biggest company, of course. The limitation I saw from people trying to put together AI became really vivid. It was not in the collection of data and certainly not in the technical infrastructure of the data. And to say it was in the use of the data kind of sidesteps the point. You know, everybody's really gotten the memo about collecting more data. You know, data is the new oil and all that sort of stuff. Everybody's gotten that, right? So there's a lot of data coming in. And yet, you know, that the term big data is becoming a little outdated, even though everybody's collecting more data and it's big. It's that Simultaneous with the uh, the, the exponential, or, or, or to be more precise, the quadratic explosion of data, there's also a similarly quadratic explosion of data sources. So you could think of data sources being like from Internet of Things, right? Just sensors all around, they're collecting more data. And so the magic is going to occur, and the difficulty currently arises, where you're trying to create data relationships. So between the massive data and all the new data sources, it's it's what do you know that connects those data? What's special about it? We might call that the data model is kind of what a computer programmer would say. How does the data relate to each other? And that is just impossibly large. If you have the quadratic explosions of one or the other, the, the intersection is really factorial which is a just the, the technical term is ginormous. You know, it's a ginormous number. <laughs> it's a, too big for, for people to be thinking about when you get, you know, big data. So big data is outdated because, okay, you think of millions, billions, but think of your Excel spreadsheet where you suddenly had trillions. You know, it's a phase change. It's like just completely different. You have to be thinking about the world completely differently. And that is the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure that's currently breaking that's limiting people's current expressions of artificial intelligence, whether it's the U.S. federal government that you saw in healthcare.gov, where these databases don't like to talk to each other, and the current leader of VA has a problem with databases talking to each other, all the way down to Banco Italia that wrote off $100 million, to Bank of Mizuho that had their ATMs go offline for a day, which is like, that's a panic, right? Those sort of systems are breaking because uh, of, of their old paradigms about how to handle big data. So the answer, this is the answer. The answer, the answer is, you know, and what to do about it is to think in compositionality. That's the term. So we all know, we all know maybe what modular means. You know, think of Lego blocks. The, 
the, it, the, the distinction between modular and compositionality might go like this. For a train, a train has modular boxcars. Swap one in, swap one out. But the train can go to only a couple of miles long, a couple thousand cars, maybe, whatever that is. That's a train. But the train system, the train system, it could be infinitely complex. The train system could be like a fractal. I mean, it's just uh, it's just big upon big. And that's the difference between modular and composable. The com composability is modular, but without regard to state. So they can be scaled infinitely large. You can imagine another, there's like a Hollywood metaphor here, is imagine a, a special effect where you erect a, a big skyscraper and then on every floor, there's another skyscraper. Like it's infinitely self-referential. That's what composability means. So that's where people need to go. That's where people, how, how people to think. There are composable systems in the world today. There are. You, this is the, the kind of the, um, the provocative way of saying this is, hey, what does... Uh, Minecraft, smart contracts, Ethereum on the blockchain, and quantum computers have in common. They're all composable. That, yay! <laughs> That's what those all have in common. They all have in common that they are composable. They're composable systems. And then how you address that is you address that with the mathematics that that can prove the uh, future or the fragility. Uh, of those systems. And that's the math of categorical algebra or category theory. So there we go. That's the full answer. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm trying to convert your answer into my disciplinary training, which is as a narrative scholar. And I look at data and I say, you know, your data itself is pretty inert. It is the story that you're able to tell about your data that matters. It's creating a meaningful narrative out of the information that you have, at which point that data becomes useful or productive or can move us toward a certain action item, for example. And so I, I'm really interested in this problem that you're trying to solve. I've heard you elsewhere call it data deluge, or this idea that the world of the internet that we work in right now, that we live in right now, is this kind of space in which what we're dealing with is not enough, uh, not the problem of not having enough information, but rather having too much information. It's really hard to make a coherent story if you're dealing with infinite amounts of information. It's really hard to decide which pieces of information fit and how they fit into that kind of linear, to use your uh, metaphor, train track, right? Um, so that you can compose a kind of model uh, on that track in some way and to get somebody from one place to another intellectually uh, on that model. This is really fascinating to me as a researcher, this condition of data deluge, because what we are used to in, I think, many of our uh, disciplines in looking at the past is the problem of data scarcity, meaning that we're always looking for clues or documents or other forms of evidence that will turn something up. We're looking for the missing piece of information. We're looking in spaces that often lack data or evidence. So historically, many of us have dealt with the problem of data scarcity in pre-internet times before everything was archived and kept forever uh, in an internet that never forgets, what we were dealing with is the problem of documenting information as expensive and laborious and infrequent. So only now, I think in more modern times, we're dealing with the idea that you can keep everything and that everything is available for analysis in terms of, of data. I'm reminded, just a brief paragraph of thought here, about a conversation I had a few months ago on the show where I hosted uh, a guest on an episode on the uh, Shoah Foundation 
archives on the concept of memory. And the problem that they're dealing with, which is a new problem in the context of human rights, is trying to make sense of Holocaust testimony in which there is more information and more testimony than one can deal with. How do you think about this problem of too much data and the problem of making meaningful stories out of this kind of excess of in information? This is great. I, I love this question. There's a, there's several things to talk about. So one is there is a beauty in this technology providing possibly a new way of thinking or a new way of relating to each other. That's what I'd suggest for everybody when they think of this compositionality. This compositionality means that I can create a building block of knowledge or of wisdom, and that would compose to other pieces of knowledge and wisdom. Languages can be such a thing. Social units are not. You know, so the nature of people is that they tend to not really compose. They tend to break at certain points. So groups of people would relate to each other in a certain way up till five or so. Then they relate to another. Then they need a, another way of relating. And then they relate another way up till, we'll say, 30. And then the canonical way people often talk about is you can have like 100, 130 people in your head. And then and then there's a different abstract way of relating to people. Those are phase changes of relationships. So that's non-compositional. There is something about that with regard to knowledge, but some type, some parts of knowledge are uh, compositional, some parts are not. The law is famously non-compositional. You can't actually define some of the terms in law with sufficient clarity that they always work with one, uh, with one another. But some of this knowledge, and this gets to the point of capturing atrocities of history or anything else, some pieces are becoming compositional. So you, some of the low-end kind of uh, automated legal services, like a legal Zoom, they point towards a compositional future in law. There are some contracts that can be made compositional. Financial contracts are a good example where we can buy and sell financial securities in a very compositional, scalable way. We can scale those infinitely. Those have become formalized in a way that they blend right next, right into one another. That's an example of knowledge or wisdom that can build, build with one another. In relationship to other types of data, there's an issue about how we're capturing the meaning of some of this data. What does this data mean? You know, when I was in the government, I get, we also had this, this question about uh, data. Where can we get big data sets at that particular time just to train systems? Well, the biggest collection of data was NASA. That's an enormous amount of data, right? I mean, just an unfathomably amount. It's the, it's the universe, literally. But, that's, but that uh, wasn't terribly useful because we need to have that represented relative to people's knowledge. And as we collected it, it just looked like it looked like stock market data, but without the labels. <laughs> so you just you couldn't make sense of it. It's just numbers coming in. Uh, so that that would need to happen for other types of research, say uh, historical uh, records that, that you want to capture. Some subject matter expert has to map their understanding of the world onto data. But the magic of compositionality and the power of the systems that are coming will allow everybody to express their understanding of that expertise to the data, and it will then forever be captured and interchanged, composed into larger and larger systems for whatever purpose one can imagine. 
That's really where that goes. So we're going to get continue to get more data, and we're going to continue to have more data sources. Again, those are both going quadratically. But what what's going to happen is that the world is going to be owned by those people that can apply their own sensibilities in a way that's clearly defined onto the data, their own wisdom, their own knowledge, so that that knowledge, that, that, that the semantics of that wisdom are guaranteed to be preserved in larger and larger compositional systems, in different patterns, in different contexts. That, that's like the, 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 the future that I can foresee that, that is coming and what I would bet my career on if I were uh, starting out in my career. Well, I want to pick your brain on this and push you on a little further because as I understand it, your company, Conexus, is doing something along these lines. This is the problem that you're trying to solve here. You're trying to, I think, find integrity in data models that will help people really understand and, and make sense of this kind of, of big data. So I want to ask you whether there are particular places or particular people that are doing this well. Do you have a case in mind that you can give us where somebody is really able to make meaningful sense uh, about the data, the kind of anti-NASA data uh, example that you gave? Absolutely. You know, Conexus is a company that I had first invested in and then decided to jump into full-time because it solved the problem that I saw as the limitation when I was in the federal government. You know, it initially actually got funding uh, from the U.S. federal government in two departments. Uh, Conexus got funding in the Defense Department to help the burden the U.S. taxpayers when new airplanes are developed and increasing the safety uh, of new airplanes and lower the cost. And in the Commerce Department, Conexus was funded to solve a problem around logistics. You know, it's really shocking how our uh, logistics systems are still run on these manual systems and how they are not currently composable. So it was in these two systems before our current supply chain crisis that I saw the benefit for the Conexus technology be applied. And that's why I invested and I, I, uh, I, I jumped in. You know, what, what Conexus does as a, as a spin out of MIT's math department, as this discovery and math that I'm describing, is it applies this math discovery to databases, you know, bringing databases together. So it addresses the type of problem that healthcare.gov and the, and the wonderful people that were bringing that into the world struggled against. But it manifests itself today in, in, in one particular example that everybody's heard of, which is Uber, the ride-sharing company. So Uber has some very smart people, you know, as, as smart as you'd imagine, and, and perhaps also consistent with what you could imagine the balance sheet is effectively infinite. You know, it could it can it could fund any IT infrastructure they would care to. But like any other company, even with a smart team and, and an infinite balance sheet, you know, they grew up caring about their business. Uh, and so, in that particular case of of Uber, they grew up uh, focusing on the optimal business strategy, not the optimal IT infrastructure, and that. That expressed itself as service areas. So every city, you say, or region, they could then uh, develop their business really quickly. But then, but later found that they couldn't develop uh, good business analytics. So they, if they were trying to predict what the traffic would be like in San Francisco for the Super Bowl, then they'd have to do a separate one for Oakland. And then I'd have to do a statistical comparison between the two. They couldn't do it for the region, let alone the state or the country. That, and that, and that produced a certain friction. For instance, it's a friction of cost. It's a friction of time. And so they looked at how to solve that problem. They did. 
And they found that they couldn't solve it just with computer science, which is where my PhD's in. It's like, oh, you know, my my stuff can't doesn't work. Machine learning at that level isn't the solution. They realized that the solution is in compositionality, is in is in this mathematics of of categorical algebra. So then they looked around the world, you know, who are the leaders in that? And they found us. We happen to be about 40 miles north of them. And then we worked with them to solve the problem and to have them tell it. You know, we save them 10 million or so a year in making their systems composable so that they can make uh, better business decisions. I wanted to challenge you a little bit on that because I'm really interested in this question of what we do when we have too much data. One of the conditions I think that we're dealing with now in the uh, context that we're in, in the age of the internet, is that our, our work now has to grapple with a new question that we never had to deal with in the past, which is not the lack of data, but what you call a data deluge. And this is fascinating to me as a researcher, because for most of history, uh, my discipline and a number of other disciplines have dealt with the problem of data scarcity. So for example, if you were in the 19th century trying to understand transactions, what you had were the collection of you know transactions of noblemen. So now as a 20, 21st century scholar looking at that, you know maybe you want to wonder, well, what did the peasants transact with? Or what kind of transactions did the non-nobility deal with? And we wouldn't have that data. We would only have data about the nobility. But in this particular moment that we're in, we're in the age of the internet. The internet never forgets. We keep everything. Now, as a literary scholar, I think about storytelling, which is, I think, what we try to do when we collect data as a process of selecting and arranging pieces of data. And we don't select or arrange everything within a story. We look for specific pieces of evidence. We look for specific types of data that will help us tell a story. So while in the past we've dealt with this problem of data scarcity in pre-internet times, before everything was digitized and archived and recorded, we had the problem of not enough. Now we have the problem of too much data. How do we make sense of this world, of this problem that we now have, this world in which we are living with too much data, trying to make sense to build stories uh, in this context of having kept everything? There's a lot to talk about here. I could first say, you know, in the context of our firm, you know, what we find for Conexus is that every manager wants to be collecting their own data in their own context. You know, one product manager wants to collect data for diabetes in their own use case. Another department wants to connect credit scores for their own use case in their own particular domain. So people are going to want to collect more and more data. What Connexus does, it it helps bring that data together per use. No, as a society, it's going to be important for us to distinguish what do we want to have happen to data. So I know in my neighborhood, we are talking about security cameras. We want to discuss, do we have security cameras? Under what circumstance do we collect the data and then disperse it? You know, Who has access to that? Do we allow it to be subpoenaed by anybody or do we just allow it to the police? Do we erase it after... 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 48 hours, you know, those are decisions for an ethicist, you know, that right, unfortunately right now we're doing neighborhood by neighborhood. And so that's a collection of the data and the use of the data. I'll talk about a bigger problem, however, which is we're collecting data that then can be synthesized in ways that are difficult to appreciate. So some entity might say, well, I'm not collecting facial recognition data. I don't know actually who that is. But it's been demonstrated with a pretty good accuracy that if you can just look at my gait, you know, how I walk, 
and my height and my shoulders, ah, you can figure out who I am. So you don't actually need facial recognition data. So you can just synthesize other data points you may already know about me to create who I am. So Delta Airlines, you know, airline I fly, they know a lot, a little about me, my hair, the hair color, my height, my age. They'll know I fly generally from San Francisco to, to New York. Well, that's particular data. Then they have the data model, and that's maybe a little bit different. What do they do with the data model, and should they expose that data model or not? Are they doing something nefarious? Is it biased in a way that is kind of socially offensive when they determine whether or not I should be upgraded? You know, we don't know. You know, that's one way to regulate. And so this is actually a point here about the collection of data that's this little appreciated when we just talk about the mass of it is we want to separate the data from the data model and maybe expose the data model in certain circumstances that we as ethicists might consider to be socially important. And then around the anonymization, uh, we, we find ourselves in the time where the European Union just released some new additions to GDPR in December. And this guidance requires a sort of pseudo-anonymization of data. But they have to, they, they then impose this requirement that companies have to prove that the data can't be recompiled somehow. And what's funny about this is they don't know. They have no idea. The people who wrote this, I guarantee they have no idea how to actually enforce this law. And how I can tell how I can tell that is because there really is no way that I know that you can do it without a deterministic AI proving all possible configurations of the links between that data. And they did not specify it. If they knew how to specify it, they would have. You can't do that just with test and failure. So my prediction about that law with GDPR is until some company other than Google gets a billion dollar fine, it's generally not going to be enforced. It's, it's a little bit like the child privacy laws. You know, the data, uh, even by well-meaning companies, uh, is not supposed to be collected off of children's apps, but it is. And the reason we know that is because they only have probabilistic systems to prevent that data from being leaked uh, into auction. So even for companies that intend to abide by the law, they can't actually guarantee it. So that's not just a collection of the data. It's also a little bit by algorithms, and it's a little bit about where the gaps in that data collection is. That's completely beside the point of collecting an unfathomably large amount of data from an, from an unfathomably large amount of data sources. Well, that's a question that I actually intended to ask you next, which is, you know, I talk to a lot of academics about the ethics of data collection, and I think oftentimes they're working on uh, particular cases in, of failure in data collection or ethical failure more specifically, um, or thinking about the abstract nature of data collection in terms of the ethical uh, kind of construct around that. Has working in the practical uh, context of industry given you a sense of what it means to treat or collect data ethically, what it means to analyze data ethically? You gave the case of diabetes, which seems to me to bring up a lot of different ethical issues. For example, if you define diabetes one way, oftentimes that definition is premised on, you know, a history of exclusion about diagnostics related to, for example, women, or in the case of diabetes, more specifically, South Asian people who present diabetes oftentimes very differently. And so the data collected in one dimension uh, that has a historical context to it may be unusable or potentially 
potentially dangerous diagnostically when applied to another group. So, you know, this is a case that came to my mind because you were talking about diabetes specifically, but I'm kind of curious more broadly about how you think about an ethics of data collection in your experience working in industry and practically. You could talk about diabetes, you could talk about other uh, cases that you have, or just broadly about some of the dimensions and parameters and some of the kind of like larger themes that you see coming out of your experience? You know, there's really a lot to talk about. Unfortunately, in my day-to-day experience, we don't have to confront these sort of decisions because there's really not an ethical consideration of vibration in an airplane. We want to minimize it. That's that's about it. Uh, We'd like to collect as much data as possible. And we don't have ethical considerations about the collection of data of footnotes in a solar array. Uh, we want to collect as much data as possible for the energy company that we work with. Those don't prevent, present uh, ethical problems for us. The, the issue is, is really based on for the company uh, or for the government. What is enabled through compositionality is actually the preservation of the semantics and preservation of the meaning that otherwise isn't available. So this actually gets more into my general experience from my time in policy. You know, I am familiar with some of these drug tests that in the same way that I just described this example around diabetes, failed to capture some of the nuance of the underlying drug research as the drug went to market. And therefore, some of the side effects in the, in the particular case I was thinking of was for Asian men that got lost in the, in the ultimate expression of the drug. So the dr- drug could be applied broadly and, and it could be effective broadly, but for this one rather large group, the medicine was actually deemed to be uh, potentially more harmful. That's actually the sort of the sort of nuance, the sort of texture that is preserved in a compositional system, in a fully integrous compositional system. That's what fortunately is available when you're guaranteeing the semantics, guaranteeing the meaning as the data is transformed. And that's that's not possible with uh, systems today, or certainly systems in the past. So I'm optimistic in the future about about mitigating uh, some of those wrongs from the new technology coming available. I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about the technology itself and the way that it works, and more specifically about the use of AI in the way that Connexus employs it. And you're an expert in AI. I've heard you talk about uh, AI in, in multiple other interviews, so I'm going to apologize in advance for asking you to probably repeat yourself a little bit. But um, I've heard you talk about the sense that you have that many people don't really understand what AI is and what it means. And I think it's kind of important for us to have that understanding so that we can understand the technology behind your ideas that lay the foundation for you to be able to do what you do with the ideas uh, in the in the context of Connexus itself. Um, you talk about AI, and I'm probably going to poorly paraphrase you here, so I'm hoping that you will explain and correct me a bit. You talk about AI being a system that moves from sensing to planning to acting and then to learning in a constant kind of feedback loop. Did I get that right? <laughs> yes, a little bit? That's exactly right. But the useful uh, addendum to that is that this is a definition that I find to be useful. Uh, It's not exactly precise, it's useful. And that's really what I would like to give people is I wanna give them a useful definition. You know, people have talked about AI being augmentation, which is true, it's automation, which is true, or my least favorite, they say, oh, it's just statistic, which I don't like because I think it's the least helpful. 
you know, it's funny that we're we're talking today where the one, one some executive of OpenAI just came out and said that their computers have, have attained consciousness. You know, that was at least a headline. Uh, I, I, I hope it was taken out of context. You know, so uh, to some extent, people might might be misinterpreting or misunderstanding AI. Some people may be intentionally obfuscating it, you know, for marketing purposes. You know, you often see Elon Musk parroting Nick Bostrom, a philosopher in Oxford. You know, he doesn't have original thoughts about AI, or maybe he does, but I, I miss them. You know, what I hear is him uh, repeating the, the issues from Nick Bostrom's concerns of a, what we call a general artificial intelligence, a conscious artificial intelligence. You know, and my point about that, and again, I'll address that and we'll get back to the definition, is that these conscious AIs that people are worried about, the ones that might be the, uh, the AI of our nightmares, or at least or, or, or a Hollywood scriptwriter's dream, I guess, depending on your perspective, you know, those, those AIs, I think, are in the consensus of other AI experts, they, they're unlikely to happen in our lifetime, you know, if ever. You know, one reason I think they're unlikely to happen in quite that way is that we actually don't understand uh, uh, our own intelligence. You know, as we talk, and then we think, well, what is Eric talking about my brain? You know, what's that voice in our head? We don't know. You know, we don't know what consciousness is. We don't, we don't know. It's a little bit like my skepticism of the metaverse, where I think we, we be, we're getting uh, proprioception backwards. You know, how do we find ourselves in other environments? It's not just an issue of bandwidth. We're going to, there's a lot to be said about augmented reality, but I, I'm really skeptical of our virtual reality for a similar reason. But here's a conclusion, perhaps of both which is it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because there's actually a lot to be scared of. <laughs> there's a lot there, There's a lot we can be mindful of, I guess you could say in the optimistic sense. There's a lot of dangers in this technology that really demands attention way before Nick Bostrom's existential threat may or may not ever come about. Nick, Nick Bostrom, if you read him carefully, will say, well, I don't know if it ever comes about, but if it, if it does, you know, it's, it's game over. So let's figure out a way to let's spend some amount of our time figuring out a way to fight against that should it evolve, which is like a fair, I think it's a, it's a fair and reasonable argument. I know him and I think he's a smart guy. So back to the definition, if they just say, oh, it's some sort of learning mechanism, then, then we get into uh, the, the pedantic definitions of, oh, well, it's a learning system, the subset of which way down, it could be deep learning, superset of that is machine learning, the superset of that is AI, and then there are deterministic and non-deterministic AIs. Like, that's just not helpful for most people. You know, that's maybe more precise uh, uh, in, in contextualizing it, but it's just less helpful. So in saying this, it's a system that, first of all, collects data through whatever mechanism into a planning system. That's kind of traditionally where you think about this, and then has to act. You know, so if an uh, automated car driving down the road, is that a shadow in the crosswalk or a person? Do I slow down, stop, or keep on going like, like the Tesla's latest version uh, says? We can do a rolling stop at five miles per hour or something like that through the crosswalk. And then, and then it learns from the experience. And the issue I, I often say about learning from the experience is I, I see Zooks cars outside my office many times an hour and Waymo cars outside my office. I don't see any out there now. Those aren't going to suddenly learn Spanish. You know, they're going to learn more about the intersection with different light and traffic and, and so on. That's what they're going to learn. And that's how it's different in thermostats. You know, your thermostat from the 70s, you know, certainly it's going to sense the temperature and then go, hey, do I need to turn on the heat or not? And then act. But it, it never learns from the experience. And that's why these new thermostats, the Ecobee or the Nest or whatever, those are learning systems. 
uh, again, they're not going to learn Spanish. You know, they're going to learn more about your your habits and walking in and out of your house and, and how to plan the temperature. That's a learning system in the simplest sense. How we can feel more comfortable about it, so how we can enter into a conversation about AI is as those tools augmenting our own behavior. The way we use calculators or Excel, you know, nobody gets threatened by using Excel and yet it put a lot of people out of work, right? You know, there we used to have typists, we used to, we used to have elevator operators. Speak for yourself, very threatened by Excel. You know, we, we, nobody really shed a tear when, when uh, treasury bond traders uh, uh, were replaced by computers. And, you know, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange now is just a place for tourists. You know, very little actually happens there in the way of trading financial securities. You know, but nobody sheds a tear for those people, but that's what automation did. So there, they are systems for automation, systems for augmentation. That's the way, that's the long answer way of describing AI in a way that I think is useful for people that they then can get purchase on it in a conversation without being an AI researcher or even a programmer day, day to day. I think about it, I guess the model I was thinking about while you were talking is when I was a youth, back when dinosaurs roamed the land, I would go to, for example, the library and I would look at a card catalog. Card catalog would be would tell me information about where to find the piece of information or the book that I was looking for. When I do that in Google, in a current iteration of a cataloging system, it senses what I might predictably want to research and then it learns from that. It assigns value to that. It directs me towards certain pieces of information. And then it creates that learning model that will then predict in the future what I might be searching for. Is that approximately the kind of model that you would associate with AI? I think any learning system that you know helps you do your job better, uh, you could think of as AI. If it's augmentation for you, that works. You know, the more sophisticated, the better. The more it might be able to predict what your needs are, the better. You know, some of those get their tricks from probabilistic thinking. And that's where they sometimes have these biases that, that we all legitimately complain about. And some of those have their tricks from just collecting massive amounts of data. So OpenAI is an example of this, where they have gotten some press recently for being able to create poetry, you know, being able to predict some English English text. And, and I think, wow, again, again, with the hyperbole about, you know, consciousness, like uh, you, we all should be surprised if they didn't create English text because the thing is so large, it has almost the entire English corpus in it. If it couldn't predict the next word, that system has something wrong. I mean, that's that is a type of AI, sure, but but it, it's not a type of AI that I really get frightened about uh, becoming conscious. It's just that once it acquires all knowledge, ah, uh, it's going to get pretty pretty good at predicting what the next thing is that's going to happen. I think the flip side of the conversation about people being worried that AI will become conscious, right, which is what Ilya Sitzkever uh, about OpenAI claimed about eleven hours ago now, or something like that. I think the more interesting question is whether or not our understanding about AI is changing how we think about our own consciousness, and I think that that's a really interesting, perhaps more interesting interesting philosophical question about how we understand what what human consciousness might look like what models of it that attempt to grasp it in part seem to miss in being unable to recreate it in full 
I, I think that there are some really useful ways in which AI is giving us a better sense uh, of what we mean when we use that word consciousness, even if it's just by definitionally what it is, what it does not refer to or what it cannot fully explain. And that becomes very interesting to me in the sense that, you know, philosophically, it asks really important questions about what we care about in consciousness to begin with, what makes human consciousness interesting to us in the first place. And so I guess when, when I look at that question, and perhaps this is very much curated around the sense that teaching Westworld tomorrow. So I'm going to be asking some of these questions using the premise of science fiction. You know, I think that there's a way in which I think you correctly diagnose thinking about AI and the dangers of AI taking over the world or replicating human consciousness and then trying to kill us is incorrect. But there are also interesting questions about how it directs us to better thinking about what our own human consciousness is composed of. I think there's a fundamental change that's going to come about in our thinking. There, there's analogs uh, from our history that I can call, but I'm sure that you uh, can uh, add to probably by an order of magnitude. I think of some study of the difference between uh, societies that used parchment versus those that used papyrus. You know, there were certain ways that they had of representing their thoughts. There was arguments that philosophical thought changed once the medium upon which those thoughts were captured was different. And I recall that even papyrus itself coexisted along uh, uh, clay tablets for a while. It wasn't obvious that we needed papyrus because for a long time, clay tablets could just be stamped. And it wasn't until the invention, the, the requirement, the thought that, that we needed curves in the clay that then parchment uh, began to be useful because otherwise your clay was fine until that time. I, I think there's many analogs also in, in art as different mediums evolved and different expressions of art from painting to architecture to music all had similar uh, new expressions when different mediums become available. So I expect that we are very early in this sense from not just our digital revolution, but from this compositional paradigm, changing the way that we are thinking and the way that we are interacting. The concept itself of a paradigm, I think, actually has defined different epochs in, in human evolution. And Westworld is an interesting example, right? Because that's a, that's a Hollywood existence. I guess we'd say that is compositional. You know, it is infinite in every way and that it you know, builds upon itself to create a whole new a uh, whole new world. And, and it's actually analogous to the worlds that we're creating uh, outside of that. So we we currently in the popular discourse talk about media uh, ecosystems and the, the, the people that uh, work with blockchain it, it, to some extent are in their own little world. The people who work with TikTok are in their own little world. Those worlds, those self-reinforcing worlds are going to continue to expand uh, in number and in richness because of this, this future of compositionality that's enabled by digital architecture. I mean, I get very excited about this. I buy your argument completely. And I think it becomes really important in that, you know, if we're working and looking at something like climate change, one of the basic problems in getting somebody to look at and think about climate change is that human consciousness historically has gravitated toward thinking about the individual and the individual locally. 
And what grappling with climate change looks like is gathering data from large data sets, from global data sets, from getting people to move from local small versions of temporality to global long geological time, right? And and that requires a shift in consciousness, not thinking about, you know, destruction or violence as a three-part Chekhovian act of here's the sensational moment of some sort of graphic experience, but rather here is a long geological time and it's happening across different global contexts. And so we need to be able to gather vast data sets and understand that. That is a shift in methodology, but it's also a shift in human consciousness. And so I actually think that the work that you're doing in data sets and looking at AI to try and connect those things is a fundamental, not only methodological term, but a fundamentally new kind of human consciousness that I don't know would have been possible a hundred years ago. And so that's, I think, a kind of example about how AI or our thinking about AI is actually shifting what human consciousness could look like or the acceptance, of the idea that we would need to look across vast data sets in order to understand our own situation or our own experience. Now, what Connexus does in the climate change arena is we have a, a few clients that are working to collect data to demonstrate their performance around environmental and social goals. What we have found, and this is this gets to the point of this inquiry around ethics and technology, we found that there are biases beyond what is in the in the public sphere around around gender or race or or, or sexual identity or or nationality. That there's another type of bias we get familiar with, which is even the existence of data itself between developed and developing countries for ESG. So we could be having solar panels in North America and then solar panels in Africa, just to use two examples. The data is easy to get in, in North America, much harder to get in Africa. That is a type of bias that then is expressed in the results that we, or rather our clients, then have to communicate to their investors. That's an important consideration to have to know where these blind spots are and how these blind spots may be expressed, where your biases may get exist, exist in your collection of data and in the relationships that subject matter experts then establish around that data. What I can say about, about ethics in, in studying ethics and the digital world is that it's going to be super useful for your students, for people that are in this community that, that are not the 18 millionth and one computer programmer, because we don't need them, to be training themselves, training people around them on exactly what we want to have happen. As a society, we'll need to make some judgments. You know, as that automated car approaches that crosswalk, somebody needs to take responsibility for what that is in the reality of that time and place. That we have crosswalks to define where a pedestrian can walk. We have lights to define when it's safe for them to walk. But when is the driver liable? When is the programmer liable? When is the manufacturer liable? And it's not just to send a, a, assign liability. It's just, it's a sort of responsibility that we as a society will ultimately need to define. And absent Absent your students and everybody in this community defining that, then who will define the ethics will be the 18 million computer programmers in the world and their product managers trying to reach, reach their quarterly objectives, getting a bonus to get a product out the door. That's who's defining our values in code right now, absent a richer conversation about ethics that starts with 
exactly what we want to have happen. I mean, I'm sort of curious about how do you see this happening in the practical dimension over which you have kind of uh, sovereignty and, and the purview to enact your own wishes and your own ethical structures. So for example, in Conexus, uh, how, how do you create a kind of ethical structure of work? And here's some of the dilemmas that I see. For example, you know, I don't think that it, m- many companies now operate with a, an entire structure of employees who are computer scientists. I don't think that that is the structure of, of organizational culture in tech that I see right now. What I see more likely happening and more frequently happening is that, you know, you have a growth team that works much more closely with the leadership team, and then you have a separate ethics team. And if the ethics team makes a recommendation that would allow a product to become perhaps more equitable in uh, outcome, or perhaps uh, more ethically inclined, but it decreases revenue by 1%, the growth team will say this decreases revenue by 1%. And the growth team will override the ethical conduct. So I guess, how do you construct uh, in, in your practice and in industry that you have leadership over a kind of ethically oriented uh, structure of business? And, and how do you hire for that? How do you put that team together? And then how do you make it operational or functional? I will say that the relationship to our customers, the relationship to our employees, uh, and then the relationship to our investors. There is a balance between all three of those. I think that's the nature of being a leader is you have to be conscious among all three of those groups. You know, no one of them can be neglected. And the, the easy thought experiment is, hey, would you like to be an employee of a company whose number one priority isn't you? You can also say to the investor, hey, would you like to invest in a company whose number one priority isn't you? Uh, you know, that's called a, that's called a university, right? <laughs> right? So you have to balance the investor and the employee uh, and, and the customer. You want all three of them to feel taken care of. And the, the examples I often find when I talk to other CEOs of their ethical considerations inside of a business is really trying to define exactly what the problem is with a little more specificity. I can say that, you know, these are these are the conversations I have with other CEOs, but I'm grateful that uh, we have not had to confront anything really so meaningful, probably because we are working with large companies uh, as our customers and in domains that are generally non-controversial. You know, everybody would like more safety in their in their commercial aircraft. Everybody would like more safety in their uh, in their energy distribution. Uh, everybody would like drugs to be found uh, with more alacrity uh, and and so forth. You know, at some point in the future, we may confront these issues in different ways. You know, when we live in a, in a large, complex world, and, and I think there may be some of these ethical considerations, I fully expect uh, some ethical considerations uh, to emerge. And what we have to manage uh, in our leadership team is just to fight against the biases that we know we have. We all know that we have cognitive biases and uh, some 50 of these darn things that get identified. And, and yet, as I just pointed out earlier with bias in data, you know, there's there's ones that can surprise us. And so we have to balance the you know, speed of our execution in, in hiring, for example, uh, with making sure that we don't make mistakes, so that as we get larger, we have a we have a difficult time recovering. I I, you know, I feel fortunate again, as I think like we started out about the people that that surround me. We already have 
in the core leadership team, kind of underrepresented groups. And one of my founders is uh, is from such a under underrepresented group. So I, I expect that uh, that good start, uh, you know, that we've already seen in our in our larger team, uh, just to continue. So and, and then also, of course, being in a in a culture with friends, uh, they're going to reinforce the sensibility. Uh, I expect that uh, we will do okay. It's something we always have to fight against because we're we're going to have the cognitive biases, and, and if you're not paying attention, we're not paying attention. If I'm not paying attention, because it's it's all you know, it's it, it's comes back to me. If I'm not paying attention, that um you know that, that you know we might fall trapped uh, in one of those cognitive biases. But uh, but I'm I'm confident we're we're doing the best we can. I know you've been thinking about this idea a lot, including thinking about this idea in the context of writing about it in a book that I understand you're writing, uh, AI for Good. What led you to want to write the book about AI for Good? What are you hoping to share or teach or help people to understand? You know, it's really coming out of the White House that I wanted to uh, share what I learned. Uh, you know, there's there's no real tell-all stories, of, uh, although that's what my publisher, I think, wanted me to write. And I, I will say it's it's challenging to try to write a book around the emerging technology that's still going to be useful uh, a couple of years uh, down the line. Uh, it's kind of the nature of a publishing cycle. You know, uh, uh, Andrew Ng, who I deeply admire, he he just publishes, he writes and then publishes, puts it on the web because the publishing cycles uh, tends to be uh, a little longer. Uh, and, and Megan Smith, uh, with whom I worked in, in the Obama administration, you know, she's also works with these these thoughts that that may appear in a book that say everyone needs to be on the field. You know, this is so important in American society. Everybody needs to be on the field. What I'm trying uh, to address is the the way in which we have the world shifting among our uh, underneath our feet. And in my book, I'm, I'm working to describe how to uh, relate to that change that's happening right now and where to go with that change, how to plan for your future career, how to plan for the education perhaps of your of your children, you know, where to plan about which companies uh, are, are likely to succeed and in what contexts. That's what I'm uh, hoping to describe is how to make sense of the, the seemingly sudden emergence of NFTs or the, the, the mysteries of, of quantum computing. How are those related? Uh, that and, and how can you make sense of it and take advantage of it, even if you're not going to be the 18 millionth and first uh, computer programmer? I guess I should ask then, what advice would you give to the next generation of computer programmers, humanists going into technological contexts, those of us who are going to be living in a fundamentally different world governed by AI? What should we know or understand or think about if we are thinking about this idea of AI for good? What advice would you give to that next generation of technologists and humanists? What advice do you have for me as somebody grappling with these questions as a scholar and as a researcher? What advice do you have for my mom living in a world of AI? What advice do you have for the future of kids growing up in this landscape? What would you tell them? First, for, for our mothers, I'm not quite so sure. You know, <laughs> my mother, uh, my, my mother, I'll just let her let her do her thing with with how she relates to computers and her, her iPad. Starting very young, I, I can say that, you know, the future is going to be around compositionality and it's going to be around this math of categorical algebra. And, and that's important because a lot of people become disinterested in math or they, be, they think it's not relevant to them. But this type of math helps one think. It actually empowers a type of thinking that is much more intuitive for a digital age than 
geometry or trigonometry or, or to have, most people will probably enjoy me saying even calculus. So I might say the more math, the better, but I, if I were to choose, I would replace calculus and trig and geometry, just replace them with categorical algebra and, and probability and more statistics. That's the math of the future and the math of the digital age. And it's the math that I think people are going to experience some use for in their day-to-day -day lives. That concept of compositionality that is uh, taught in categorical algebra, I think then defines the next layer of education that people may experience in their 20s, which is around defining exactly what we want algorithms to do, how we want algorithms to be structured. You know, we don't have to be computer programmers to define the heuristic that then becomes an algorithm that can be then coded. We talked about the automated car. We talked about, we can maybe talk about logistics. You know, tell me exactly what's going to happen. A whole bunch of if, then, that. You know, what What do I want to have happen? That's that's a value of inquiring into ethics where we decide what's what are our values get expressed as in code. You know, often lawyers are trained to be very disciplined thinkers, sometimes accountants, engineers, to be sure. But all of us will benefit by being just a little more careful, a little more mindful of the precision of our thinking. That's gonna be an emerging skill because, because the future careers are gonna be owned by those people that are able to bring their subject matter expertise and define it really carefully. You know, there will be a place for human judgment to be sure, and it's generally gonna be in those places that demand empathy. But more and more, we're gonna be taking advantage of people with subject matter expertise encoding their knowledge. And the extent to which that encoded knowledge can then be represented in other systems, in other contexts, in other patterns, is the extent to which that people will find their, their work or their knowledge to be rewarded. And that all starts with, uh, with the ethics uh, of the digital world. I think we have time for one more question, and I wanted to devote it to the category or the concept of people. You started off talking about the importance of people. I'd love to have you end talking about the importance of people, and more specifically, the importance of the role of the individual in directing or leading us to a place of what you have called in your, in your book, AI for good. What can a person, what can a leader, what can you, what do you do? to be the kind of leader, the kind of person, the kind of actor that would lead us to a landscape of AI for good. You know, if you've listened to uh, some of my other interviews, you may have heard this story, but it's, it's worth repeating in an answer to, to this question, which is an answer that actually comes from uh, President Obama. So in his oval-shaped office, he had an oval-shaped rug, around, and around the perimeter, it had the inscription that was credited to Martin Luther King that said, the long arc of history bends towards justice. So the long, long, long arc of history bends towards justice, Martin Luther King. But, and he reminded us, President Obama reminded us, but not without our participation, not without our participation. The long arc of history will bend towards justice, but not without our participation, President Obama would say. That I, uh, I still get goosebumps thinking about because it not only is a, is a terrific phrase from a, a terrific man, but also it's completely relevant to your question about becoming the right person to make a difference in this world uh, of artificial intelligence. You know, the, the degree to which artificial intelligence and digital technologies more generally are closer to the dystopia of the Hollywood narrative, like a Westworld, or closer to the utopia 
uh, of our dreams in, in all the ways it might manifest is up to us. And it's not just up us to people like me that happen to have grown up in a basement with a lot of computers and no light, but it's up to all of us to have a conversation with, with, you know, with narrative scholars talking about ethics, about how we can continue to evolve this digital technology, these magical tools in some sense, to better serve all of us. That's a conversation. Exactly what do we want to have happen that will best take care of all of us is a question for all of us. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. It's been good to be here.